nothing good will come out of a pitch that is, doesn't live in your heart, where the core of the show isn't something that you live and breathe. You're listening to the TV Campfire, presented by ATX Television Festival. Hi again, Caitlin and Emily here, ATX Festival founders and your podcast guides for another episode all about the pitch. Ever wonder how your favorite series got started? What was the original idea? How was it pitched in the room? How they got a studio or network on board? What is a pitch anyway? We've got your TV hack right here. Get ready for a conversation between two amazing TV talents, a legend and an up-and-coming voice, but also a conversation between a mother and daughter. We brought in ATX Festival alum and TV powerhouse Marta Kaufman, who you might know from a little-known project a few years back. Four hints. Marta is one of our absolute favorite people to talk TV with. So is her daughter and co-conspirator Hannah Cantor. You're going to hear all about the original pitches for Friends and Grace and Frankie, insider stories, bizarre pre-pitch traditions. Well, we're bringing you the whole journey from napkin scribble to small screen. So pull up a log, pour yourself a drink, start roasting that marshmallow, and settle in for what's your pitch? My name is Hannah Cantor. I am a producer on Grace and Frankie, uh, executive producer on the documentary Seeing All Red, and I am the VP of Current and Development at OK Goodnight. And I'm Marta Kaufman, and I did a bunch of stuff. I created Friends and Dream On, and am also a producer on Seeing All Red, and executive producer and showrunner, and created Grace and Frankie with Howard Morris. I also like to think of myself as a director and a very fancy person. (laughs) (laughs) So fancy. So fancy. You can tell by my flat shoes and... (laughs) Earth tones. Earth tones, (laughs) yes. When I was younger, I used to think that I was going to be a teacher, I think, most of all. I would, like, set my dolls up, painstakingly teach them, like, math... That was like my how I wanted to play <laughs> with my my size Barbie, really and I'd like up. admonish her for not learning her addition, for <laughs> <laughs> not paying attention to me. I think that's what I initially thought for myself. You know, as much as Barbie dolls are small waisted, I'm convinced that if you look at what people did with their Barbie dolls, it's related to what they do as adults. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to put on shows for God with my Barbie dolls because my parents weren't interested in watching them. <laughs> or my dog. I would do it for my dog. When I was a kid, though, I didn't think I would go into this business. My mother told people I was going to teach people with mental disabilities. That's what she told people. She was convinced of it. She told it Based many on years, nothing that you... Based on nothing. Then that that's what she wanted me to do. Then I thought I was going to be a ballerina, but I grew breasts, so that stopped. And then I realized I like telling stories. We started doing musicals, writing book and lyrics for musicals, and we did that in college, and then sort of went, oh, this is fun. Way more fun than being an actor, which I was for about 14 minutes. A lot more fun being on the other side of the table. A television pitch is, A, a sales tool, and B, the description, it should give you the essence of what a show is going to look like. It's about 
the show generally rather than more specifically. It's about what a season might look like, who the characters are, the kinds of stories you might want to tell, why the show should be on the air today, now, why you should be the writer for it, and what makes you passionate about it. Another thing, you know, that you taught me about a pitch is that the way that it's written or performed or conveyed should tonally reflect the ultimate series. That yeah. It's one thing to describe the tone, but you should really be proving to the buyer, I'm inside of this tone. This is the way I'm making you feel right now is the way this show is going to make you feel. That's absolutely right, which means I was absolutely right when I first said that to <laughs> you. You are a genius. <laughs> That's how I like to think of myself. It's very true, though. To get a sense of the tone, you can't just describe the tone. You have to write the tone in the pitch. And the pitch needs to be not just a written document, but a document that, in essence, has the feeling of what the show is. You, you want to write it conversationally as if, I, as if I were telling the story to you of the show, not some well-written description of the show. But I'm telling you the story, and I want you to get involved, and I want you to get sucked in. One of my pet peeves when I hear, you know, pitches for people for development for OK Goodnight to take on or, or read, you know, pitch documents is when they say it's a half-hour comedy, but there's nothing funny about any of it. And so it leaves you being like, well, why That's is it funny. a comedy? Why? How, how can I trust, aside from you telling me it's going to be funny, there's no... It's like, you know, a lot of people do that, where they write comedy pitches that aren't funny, or they talk about why it's single... They talk about that it's single camera, but not why mm -hmm. it should be single camera. Or that it's multi-camera, but why? How is multi-camera going to help you? Every choice you make in a pitch has to give you more information about what the show is. Right. And it needs to be deliberate. It all needs to support right. your vision. And the your pitch is an oppor idea. opportunity to tell someone why all of these pieces combined makes this vision. And it's you always have to come back to what is at the heart of the show. Mm -hmm. What's at the heart of it? If it's a half-hour comedy that's really funny, then you better put some jokes in there. If it's got heart, you better put things in there that make you understand where the drama comes from. And so, why you care. And... Right. The pitch is a, a sample of what people will feel about the show. When, when OK Goodnight is deciding how to pursue a sale, if, if we're choosing between whether to submit a, a script or write a script internally and then submit it or, or to pitch it, we always choose to pitch it because Marta is the most amazing pitch master of all time. And every pitch that we've ever done, no matter if they buy it in the room or if they're not interested or whatever it is, they always say, that was an amazing pitch. That's like the first words out of their mouth regardless. And we know for a fact that that's not always the case because we've pitched shows with other writers and it doesn't always feel that way. So when it's internal development, we always pitch. True that. We always pitch. And I've seen some dreadful pitches. Dreadful. A dreadful pitch can be many things. One is that 
the person who's pitching is reading directly from a document and doesn't make eye contact. Another way for a dreadful pitch is where you can't follow what the story's about. We actually had one of those today. <laughs> we did. We're not going to go into that no, anymore. It, it's one of those things. It's like when you want, you want to like it and you feel like there might be a there there, but when the person who's supposed to be carrying that vision forward can't even sell you on it and you're already like one foot in the door, it's just kind of dead in the water. The other thing that makes a bad pitch is where you have no emotional connection to it. Mm-hmm. There is never... Nothing good will come out of a pitch that it doesn't live in your heart, where the core of the show isn't something that you live and breathe. If you're just pitching something because it's an idea, it's never going to work. It's got to be something that you feel 100% in your soul. Yeah. I think that passion is really important because there is a chance that that passion will also live in one other person in that room. If you're really kind of bleeding for this story and you're sure in your in your gut that this needs to be told you have a chance of sparking you know that flame in that other person and and let me just say i think i don't often give myself compliments but i am really good at pitching and i think part of the reason for that is not just the way the pitch is written but it's also i know how to perform it mm mm-hmm. It's a performance. Definitely. I know that pitch inside and out. And I will, you know, move my finger along the pitch that I have, but I know it inside and out. I know where the jokes come. You know, I was used to doing this with David Crane when we were pitching all the way up through Friends, where we just knew how to finish each other's sentences and it was an easy flow. You know, this is a pitch is something that should be alive. It should be alive. And I think in in keeping with that, there was one pitch that we did. Well, I'll back up and say that you have to not only perform your pitch, but you have to believe everything that you're saying and and get inside of all of that. We did a pitch one time where someone halfway through was like, I'm sorry, this totally sucks. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And just bailed on herself, I think, just out of insecurity. And... <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was so. I mean, you know, because it's and so you know what, it wasn't the pitch. worst pitch I've ever been no, in. No, no. Well, and it wasn't. It wasn't a bad show. No, it wasn't a bad show. But it was. But, but it was self sabotage to the highest it degree. That she didn't get it. She realized, which was, you know what, just as well. Yep. Just as well. Yeah, but it was. It was a moment where if she hadn't sort of called it off. And she f- ended up finishing the pitch, but it just sucked all of the air out of the room because it's like, why would they buy in if you are not even convinced? It was just, it was brutal to and watch. And you can be very convinced and it doesn't mean the people you're pitching to are. Right. I mean, you can pitch a comedy to people who have no sense of humor and it's like pitching to a doorknob. We pitched to someone once who was just like scrolling through his phone the entire time. And that, I mean, you can have an amazing pitch and that will kill it. So let me just share the one of the worst pitches I've ever been a party to. Dave and I were pitching a show. The guy who we were pitching to, as we're pitching, his eyes were closing and he was literally holding his eyes open the way you do in front of a teacher, (gasps) trying to hold his eyes open. And he got up at one point in the middle of our pitch and made cappuccino, frothing the milk and all. I mean, literally, it's going... He's going, go ahead, keep going, keep pitching. And he's 
steaming milk in the middle of our pitch. There could not be a louder activity that a person could Correct. do. Correct. Unless you're killing someone. I mean, <laughs> maybe. It was awful. It yeah. was awful. So it's like even, you know, there's so many, there's so many X factors like, it's such a delicate... It's sort of like, you know, when a TV show hits the airwaves. It's like there's so much that has to coalesce to have that perfect, you know, everybody feeling on yeah. the same page and the vibes are right, but... Yeah, you can do the greatest dog and pony show in the world, and it may not matter. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a good dog and pony show, it will matter. Right. That is very well stated. Why, thank you. I worked hard on that. <laughs> Thought about it all last night. <laughs> How much do you remember about the original pitch for Friends? I don't remember the words. I remember, here's what I remember. I remember the show that we always knew the show was about that time in your life when your friends are your family. When we did our very, we were doing the very last couple episodes and the Today Show came and it was Matt Lauer who was asking the questions and he read the pitch to the cast. I think it was our last episode. And what was astonishing to me was that it was always about the same thing, that we never strayed from what the core belief, the heart of the show was, which was it's the show about the time in your life when your friends are your family. I remember that. I remember being at several networks and... Where did you take it? The ones I remember most clearly were Fox and NBC, because they both wanted the show. Fox wanted to make it, if I remember correctly, they wanted to make it a, a single camera, but it didn't feel like a single camera show to us. And we just had the sense that NBC sort of got it more, and they had places for us, and Fox was always a little off in terms of the stuff they were doing. It wasn't sort of on the straight and narrow, the real heart of things. And Friends was a pretty... It was not an edgy show, even though we went into some edgy places. It wasn't, in its essence, an edgy show. Straightforward in yeah. format. I remember in the original pitch, Chandler and Phoebe were secondary characters. Wow. I know, dumb, right? Did that survive to the pilot stage, no. or by then you knew? By then, by the time we did the pilot, we realized the first rehearsal we had when we had the six of them on set in the coffee house for the first time, and I remember getting chills up my spine and thinking the show is lives with them, the six of them. Right. It's not four and two, it's six. Great instincts. Why, thank you. <laughs> Lucky as shit. When you first came up with the concept, when did you take it to Warner Brothers? So we had just done Dream On, and Dream On had one actor who had to be in every scene. And, you know, we'd start shooting on Monday, and by the time we got to Friday, he was, like, ready to explode because he was in every damn scene. Yeah. And it was really difficult, and we half-jokingly said our next one's going to be an, an ensemble show. And we started talking about the time in David and my life when we lived in New York and we were a part of six people, what that period of our life was like. We And we were sort of looking for all the characters. We didn't really base it on us, except that I was always the annoying one, making sure people closed the felt-tip marker until it clicked. And, <laughs> and David was 
more than erotic, self-deprecating one. We'd first moved to L.A., and I was driving down the street, and I saw a place called Insomnia Cafe. And just that name struck me about this place, a coffee house where people go when they're like, you know, they have stuff to talk about. And that's actually what started the conversation that got us to the place where we eventually created friends. Was it fully baked when you attached a studio or did Warner Brothers Oh yeah, we were with, we were at Warner Brothers developing for them at the time. Oh, I see. I see. We had just finished doing Dream On and David and Kevin and I got a deal at Warner Brothers and they were looking for stuff and this was our second year with them. Our first year was an utter disaster and our second year we developed a couple things, and one was an utter disaster, and one was not. And I'm convinced that utter disasters come from places where, when your heart isn't in the show, right? that's where they come from. Right. I have no recollection of that, of telling Warner Brothers about it. I really don't. I remember pitching it. I mean, telling Warner Brothers was never a scary thing, because they were generally so supportive. I have no memory of telling Warner Brothers the story of the show, and I don't think any of us knew what we had. I don't think we had any idea. We just thought, here's another idea for a show. Um, and, and you know, TV is, is lightning in a bottle. You don't know. You don't know what's going to hit. The stars have to be aligned. The actors have to be right. The writing staff has to be right. The producing team has to be right. You don't know. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. But did you feel like you nailed the pitch after you pitched it to NBC? Were you like, Hell yeah. I just killed it? We nailed the pitch. We nailed the pitch every time we did it. David and I, I'm telling you, we could do a pitch where you would think it was one person talking. And we would just flow from one another. It was an extraordinary dog and pony show. And we nailed the pitch. It was a really good pitch. But you never knew. You never knew what you were going to get in response. Oh, we have a show like that with people. I love I mean, that we, one. I'll tell you one of my favorite pitches. Mm-hmm. My favorite pitch was The Powers That Be. We, ooh. All right, I'm going to tell the story. Don't do it. Just kidding. <laughs> Please do it. I'm going to do it. So we were developing television for Norman Lear who honestly didn't get me and David. Didn't get us. He, at one point, after reading a script of ours, called us shallow and superficial. So on our office doors at Dream On, instead of David Crane and Marta Kaufman, we had shallow and superficial on our doors. <laughs> but, That'll show Norman Lear. Right? We were under contract with him, so we had to create a show. So we came up with a show. We were told no politics. I mean, there was like a list of things we couldn't do. So what did we do? Politics. We had a lesbian wife who slapped the maid. We had a bulimic daughter, a suicidal son-in-law. We put everything in this show to make it not happen. I remember pitching it. This is like the producers. This is the producers. Yeah. We pitched it actually to the guy who was holding his eye open when we were pitching whatever else we pitched to him. And after pitching the cold open, he fell in love with it and bought it. And we're like, oh, fuck. Now we have to do this show that we just create. We just made it up so that we didn't have to do it. We put everything in there that we could to destroy the idea of it. And it sold. And we had one of the most extraordinary casts. It was David Hyde Pierce, Holland Taylor. We had an amazing cast. Our opening scene for David Hyde Pierce was he played the very depressed son-in-law. He's using the curtain rope 
to make a noose for himself and he gets up on a chair and he puts the noose around his neck and he jumps and off the chair and he opens the curtains. That's <laughs> all. <laughs> and we thought, this kind of stuff isn't going to sell. It'll never sell. It's old. That was a nightmare. The cold open we pitched was a dream that the John Forsyth character who played a senator had. And it was the way we set up that he was having an affair, but I don't remember the actual cold open because I'm old and have too many cold opens in my head. David Crane and I met in college. We were in a production of Camino Real. He was a street urchin and I was a whore. And that's how we met. <laughs> <laughs> and I love that story. I know, isn't that a sweet story? Mm-hmm. A very sweet story, but we became instant friends, and I had gotten an opportunity to direct a production of Godspell, and I asked him if he'd be in, and he said, no, I'll direct it with you. And then that was it, just starting to work together. We just realized we had to work together, and we did for 27 years. When you pitched to NBC, do you remember who was in the room and how it went and the specific moments that that killed? You know, in general, I think for pitches, I remember terror. There is always terror before a pitch. And then you go into the pitch and I go completely numb. There are very few pitches I can remember. I mean, I think Warren Littlefield was in the room. I think Jamie was in the room. I, I, Don Olmeyer, I don't think was in the room think it was was Warren, Warren Littlefield. But I honestly, I remember who was in one of the people who was in the Fox room because we had pitched a show that we did for him the year before and he gave us one of the stupidest notes I ever heard. So I remember him, but I'm not going to say his name. Mm-hmm. Not going to say his name. Okay. <laughs> okay. Well, as much as I'm tempted to say his name. Can you tell us the note? We pitched a show about high school. Um, He wanted a show about kids in high school, and then he asked us to make it more grown-up. Cool, 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 cool. Right? Cool note. (laughs) Cool note about a school about high school kids, a show about high school kids. There's another thing that happened. You know, we pitched a show for friends about six people in their 20s. So once we sold it to NBC, they said, you need someone older, maybe in the coffee house. Maybe the owner of the coffee house. Maybe it's a cop who comes by. We used to call him Pat the Cop, this character. We actually stood up to them and said, no, you don't. If the stories are universal, the show will work. And I have to say the same thing is true of Grace and Frankie. Mm-hmm. People, you know, all concerned about, oh, how can you do a show for just about older people? And you can. If the stories are universal, the show will work. And I think that's true of all pitches. If the stories are something people can connect to, the show will work. Right. Trying to remember the pitch. I hate to say this, but it was 26 years ago. What I remember about the pitch is what we were going for. I don't remember the specifics. I don't remember jokes that we wrote. I could probably find them. I mean, I know I have the pitch. What I remember is... What we really had to get across was that this was a show about six people at a certain time in their lives. And that that's bottom line, whatever the jokes were, that's what the show was about, is those six people. The moment I knew that there was something special about Friends, first of all, it wrote itself fairly easily. I have this thing that if it's too hard, there's something wrong. 
this show, and I'm not saying David and I didn't do anything, but it wrote itself in about four days. That was the first clue. Then the first rehearsal, as I said before, the first rehearsal when all six of them finally were together in the coffee house and I got these chills up my spine, I knew we had something really special. I had no idea it would be successful, but I knew we had something special. And then it wasn't until somewhere in the first season that we thought, this might stick. Jimmy Burroughs tells a great story about taking the cast to Vegas or something after the pilot. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. (laughs) Kevin and David and I stayed back. (laughs) But he said something to them to the effect of, like, take this in because this is the last time you're You're not going to be be recognized in public. That's right. He did say that to them. Pretty he did say that prescient. To what did he you knew. say to them? Um, nothing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, asking me if I have a favorite episode is like asking me if I have a favorite child. She does. It's me. <laughs> so she'll be able to answer if she has a favorite episode. I do love, however. <laughs> Like I said, I have several episodes that I just love and I have moments I love. But one of my favorites is I love when Ben is born. I love that episode. I love Ross and Carol's lesbian wife in a closet talking about who it's harder for to have this child. I I love that episode. I do. And I have other ones that I love, but but that one really has a place in my heart. You have you you have favorite jokes. I do. You have a I handful of favorite I jokes. Hold me close, young Tony Danza. I fucking love that. And there's another joke I love when Chandler and Monica are out to dinner, run into Tom Selleck's character, Richard, and Richard recites a poem, and there's a long beat, and Chandler just goes, what? <laughs> I love that, and I love it's a moo point. That is another one of my favorite moments. But I love the lobster as, as a sort of larger moment. But there are moments that for me as a showrunner are so gratifying. When we were in London shooting the scene with Monica and Chandler in bed for the first time, it was one of the most shocking and gratifying moments of my career because the audience went insane. We had to literally pause and wait for them to stop screaming when they saw the two of them in bed together. When they popped out of the sheets. When they popped out of the sheets. And it was just one of those moments we never, ever would have imagined. We thought this was just a funny joke, and then suddenly the people reacted and we went, oh, I guess we need to pay attention to this. We thought it was just a bit. Where were we wrong? When the audience started screaming and we had to stop shooting for a while to let them finish screaming, that's when we realized we have to pay attention to this and we better make this story and not just a joke. I mean, I remember so much about Friends growing up because I spent every Friday of production on the set. It's just like a piece of the fabric of my childhood, I would say. I loved going home from school sick because I could go to your office and sleep (laughs) on your really comfortable couch and watch TV in your office and go into the kitchen in the office and they had all the sugar cereal because we were not allowed to have sugar cereal at home during the week. It was like heaven. And everybody was really funny there. And they all thought I was 
adorable. It was a, it was great. And on show nights, I love to ride on the dolly. On oh, the dolly. With Pat, was that her name? Uh-huh. That dolly grip? The dolly grip, the female dolly grip. I love I can her. remember you coming to the offices and playing, like, bowling. We had that long hallway. Mm-hmm. And you would basically take a ball and go bowling and try to hit writers. Yep. Yep. Mostly I remember the food. I remember <laughs> services. <laughs> she would make me, like, special stuff because she, she liked me. I can remember when, when Hannah was a teenager and she would bring her friends, but she was a little too cool for it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to be very nonchalant. You were very nonchalant about it. Your friends were impressed, but you were like... And you had to really be a good friend to get an invite because... Yes, you did. <laughs> I wasn't trying to, like, be the girl who, if you suck up to her, should takes you to a taping. You know, it really did imprint on me. I was aware of the impact and the reach of the show. In terms of the, the world? In terms of In terms, terms of the world, audience? but even just, you know, a studio audience being so stoked to be there and reacting super big every time, you know, you do a scene over and over and over again, and they're hysterically laughing every time. And I th- Were you impressed, or were you like, this I was, is just what life is? I was very impressed to the point that I really did not want to end up in TV because I was like, this is, it doesn't, you don't achieve higher than this. This is this is just about as good as it could ever be. And then just through like sequence of jobs, I ended up sort of circling the TV drain anyway. <laughs> sort of an irresistible pull. And let me just say about that. Mm-hmm. You kick butt. You kick butt. I I I have. I am so deeply impressed. And thank you, everybody, for tuning in to the Mother-Daughter Affirmation (laughs) Hour. Uh, It's true. It's not just being a mommy. It's true. You're awesome at what you do. And a very quick learner. Well, I had an opportunity to, you know, absorb and learn from the actual best. (laughs) Aw. anything you have to eat sleep and breathe it if it doesn't matter to you why should it matter to anyone else right but i wasn't sure how it was going to go putting hannah and marta on the spot to recreate pitches for friends and grace and frankie we thought it was only fair to give you our pitch for the festival from seven years ago go ahead kate uh how about just the log line still all you okay it's probably more than a sentence the original pitch was it is a film festival meets TV upfronts meets did we say comic con? We said comic con. Which is so weird. So ATX Television Festival is a traditional film festival meets upfronts meets Comic Con. It is fifty percent fan and fifty percent industry with a third past, a third current, and a third upcoming television. It's screenings and Q and A's, it's panel conversations, and it is a celebration of all TV in Austin. I think that was most of it. Yeah, I mean, those were at least all the words. I don't know if they were in that order, but it all kind of meshed together. Do you remember the very first time we pitched the festival? I just remember we had this idea for a TV festival. We thought there are so many film and music festivals out there. Why not TV? 
Honestly, it's kind of crazy to me that we got there first in 2011, but we always had the core of that original idea, half fan, half industry, maybe not so much Comic-Con. But then people would ask us questions. I can remember this in pitches. You, it was like the pitch was alive. We would have prepared so well, but then they'd ask us a question and we would just make up the answer. Like, how many people are you expecting? And we would answer like 10,000. <laughs> Emily, how many people were at the first festival? You know, we say 700 and I think that's even a stretch. Yeah, 36 hours, but it was perfect. It was the perfect way to launch. 700 people, 36 hours still a celebration of TV. So we all know that it sucks looking for a great pair of jeans. It requires the perfect cut and jeans are my favorite thing to be in day and night. So why not make this process way simpler? All you have to do is go to distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com and pick out some jeans that you think look good. Pick out a few pair. Why not? They'll ship them to you for free and give you free returns until you find the perfect pair. Just go to distilled.com and get 20% off by using the code TV Campfire. No spaces, one word. I've got a pair, the women's mid-rise skinny jeans in black power stretch. That power stretch is super important, just FYI. They were only $85, super comfortable. I'm going to be getting three or four pairs of them. Just go to distilled.com. Use that promo code TV Campfire. That's distilled.com, D-S-T-L-D.com. All right, I got to tell this story. All right, so here's the inception of Grace and Frankie. Hannah and I were sitting in the car, coming back from Malibu. We knew that Jane and Lily were interested in doing a TV show together, and we each had one idea. Hannah's was the good one. No, I don't, wouldn't even say that it was the good one, but you didn't know about Transparent yet. I didn't. My idea had, was that, that Lily comes back as having been Frank, and now she's Frankie, and it's about their relationship. But Transparent was happening. But Hannah's idea was about these two women who don't like each other, whose husbands fall in love and get married, and that they're left with each other. That was Hannah's idea. It was. It really was. But the Proud other of piece... Yourself? You know, and the, I kind of thought that it was beginner's luck in a weird way because I had only just started working with you. It's true. Like a month before that, if that. And, um, but maybe it was just having, you know, a, a fresh brain. It was just, see, yeah. but it just seemed like it was right there. It was, it was the, the way we talk about friends being that time in your life and your friends or your family, this was the initiating idea that gave us the whole concept of starting your life over again. I mean, all these other things that fall under this one idea, starting your life over again at any point, mm. what it is to be an older woman, sexuality at a certain age. I mean, all of it came under this umbrella. This seemed to be the perfect concept. Yeah. For the larger idea. And, you know, the original pitch for the show had all of that stuff baked into it. Like, it really, it was, the I think the vision and that sort of, that core was so pure and was so right that it was very easy to just keep yeah. drawing from that well over these five seasons. Let me just say, one of the, the interesting things about this particular show is the concept for the show 
kicks off the series, but there came a certain point, I think it was after second season, that we realized the initial concept of the two men who fall in love and the women who are left dealing with each other no longer pertains. The women now love each other. The men love each other. Now what's really at the heart of the show, and that's where we got to the stuff in the pitch about starting your life over at any age and sexuality and all that other stuff. We were able to sort of sort out that trauma Mm -hmm. of the premise and reinvent the show. In season three. I will say that, you know, I think what allowed us to do that is that at the core of the concept and at the core of really everything that we do is hope So you always have this sort of light that you're moving toward and you have, you know, setbacks and everything. But there was always this was never going to be a grim tale, which goes to, I think, not only what our company does, but I think how we feel about television in general. As far as I'm concerned, television is a very intimate viewing experience. It comes into your home. While you're folding your laundry, or you're naked, or you're making dinner, or you're in bed. And for me, these characters have to be people I want to invite into my bed, Mm -hmm. or my home, or my laundry. So there are very, very successful shows that are wonderful, that are much, much darker, and much more twisted, and the people are much nastier to each other, and it's, it's more difficult familial relationships. We didn't want to do that. We wanted to do something that gave people hope, I think, as Hannah said. I think Friends is not dissimilar. I mm-hmm. think that there was something aspirational about those relationships and that intimacy between them and that you felt like you just needed those friends. They were your friends and yeah. your fantasy. And I think there's something really aspirational about Grace and Frankie that you can be, you know, left in the lurch at 70 whatever years old and, and still, still find your soulmate in a way. And it's not where you expected, and it's enriching, and you become more yourself then than ever before. Feel those feel like the stories worth telling, right? And it I makes agree. them easy to pitch because you're yeah. like, who doesn't need to be, you know, have Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin cheerleading for them? In terms of how we got Jane and Lily, this was a fluke. I had a meeting with Marcy Ross, who runs the TV department at Skydance. I had met her on. A whole other thing, and we got together to have lunch to talk about doing something together. And she said to me at that lunch, you know, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin both want to do TV. I thought she meant together. So I called my agent and I said, is it true that Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin want to do a TV show together? And she said, I don't know. I'll call you back. And 20 minutes later, she called me back and she said, they do now. And that's how it started. Mm-hmm. That's how it started. They do now, and then we... And then we pitched this to them. We mm-hmm. First, we pitched our two, you know, our transparent version and our Grace and Frankie version to Skydance. They and told then, us about transparent. And we picked the Grace and Frankie one. <laughs> and um, But that was a that was an interesting experience for me, because that was my first experience pitching, because you and I went to go meet them, and you pitched yours, right. and I pitched mine. I was so nervous, but I was like... I know how to do this. Just pretend like you're not nervous. Was this the one? Was this, was this the one where Jane's dog took a shit in my house? No, this was, was my house? this was at the Skydance. This is when Skydance oh, Sky was still at Paramount. So, no, but then we met after we'd sold 
Skydance on that concept, we met Jane and Lily right. at your house to pitch them. And we sort of fleshed it out a little bit yeah. more for them and got deeper into what their characters were about. And, and just... Jane ate a lot of cookies. And we were just like, can't believe she just ate cookies. No, that was incredible. It's the big things. What I remember is telling Jane that the character was a little bit Nancy Reagan. And the characters don't come to life until the actor is in them. You can create them, you can imagine what they are, and then an actor breathes life, and they become something else. So when Jane and Lily breathed life into Grace and Frankie, they became something bigger than what we had originally thought of. Because you just, you know, it's only two-dimensional when, when it's in your head. And then, you know, these actors come along and, and make it better than what you thought it could be. I remember telling Lily... You know, describing Frankie to Lily about how she's this earth mothery hippie artist, and you know, she's like Agnes Varda, but she's also like, you know, paints with her boobs and right. all this stuff. And, and she was like, and she could have hair like yours. Yeah. Referring to your <laughs> she hair. loved the hair thing. And so was born her, her wig that looks it a lot so like your hair. True. But that was like, that was something she hooked into. It was like the character made sense for her when we put Marta's hair on Frankie. It's very interesting because Lily and Jane work very differently. And Lily, in some ways works from the outside in and she likes things like hair and props and things that help her, you know, gum. It like orients her yeah. character. And Jane works from the inside out. I remember Jane was a little reticent to play someone who was so repressed and so uptight. A really funny moment, one of the first meetings we had with Jane and Lily, we were talking about men and she was talking about how men of a certain age, between Cialis and Viagra, and there's a thing with a pump you can pump. And she said in one of the men she was with, there was a thing with a, uh, you can do an injection that causes an erection. And Lily just looked at Jane and said, you have got to get younger boyfriends. <laughs> and so I remember in that moment thinking, there's our show. Yeah. That's it right there. It's true. It was that it was it was meeting with them where it was that that little lightning in a bottle moment a where spark. you were like, I s totally see it. Yeah. I see how this works because they've they're they they have it between them. You know, they already have that chemistry. Yeah. But it was it became so apparent to see them together. And that's also why you we ended up, you know, incorporating them into the pitch. We scripted mm -hmm. moments for them to be chiming in throughout the pitch because we pitched with Jane and Lily. So you can imagine what a powerful room to have Marta and Howard and Jane and Lily and like all of Skydance and me obviously bringing the muscle. So we pitched Everywhere? No. We only pitched to three places in one day because we only had Oh, Jane because and two Lily. of them because two of them and two of them wanted it. Yes. Well and that we found out after the fact. We had one day where we had Jane and Lily all day and we had David Ellison with us because this was like one of their first big right. TV properties that they were shopping. So it was a very impressive room and we went to HBO and Netflix. Netflix and ABC because, you know, we thought there might be 
a version where, you know, we can tone it down on the sort of... Uh, Never our first choice. No, and, and I, I do think that was really more of a business thing, you know, to see if we, if we could get a, a significant offer from them and if that could maybe pump up one of the premium offers. And I think that did end up... We we had Happening. a little bit of a bidding situation. Yeah, we did. I don't know how a buyer sits in a room with all of those people and is like, you and know what? Get excited. I'm good. I'm not. I'm not into this so much. But thank you so much, Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin. <laughs> so the way it generally works is we write out a pitch. I mean, the pitch is written within an inch of its life, even though it shouldn't feel like that when we perform the pitch. It's scripted, though. But it is scripted. And when you have actors like Jane and Lily, they can make it seem like it's happening in the moment. So it's, there's there's a line, you know, in the beginning of the pitch where it's very early and it says, Grace and Francis, or Frankie as she is called by everyone but Grace, don't particularly like each other. And then we have it scripted for Lily to say, on the show. And then for Jane to say, right, in real life, we tolerate each other. Which, you know, what we were going for is the sense of what the relationship would be like on screen. And this is what, what Hannah said earlier about you've got to put the jokes in. You've got to get people to understand where the humor is going to come from. Right. And what the dynamics are. And when you have your your cast already attached and pitching with you, you're, yeah. it's just a pity to not use One them. One thing people don't do enough when they talk about their shows is talk about what the relationships are between people, not just what the characters are, but what do those relationships look like? We didn't have to talk about it because we could show it. Mm-hmm. But if you're not going to show it, you better talk about it. And I think that the premise was pretty rich in that yeah. it became clear where that conflict would come from and what we were growing toward. Yeah, yeah. But in terms of, like, the tone and tenor of that dynamic, it was like, what better than to just have them acting it out? And I have to say one thing that we're not really addressing here, and this is a bit of an aside, is I get to work with my daughter. <laughs> Welcome back to Mother Daughter <laughs> Affirmation Hour. You know, I don't know about from your perspective, but from my perspective, in terms of how the relationship came together, it's been an incredibly organic, natural, at least it feels it to me. I mean, I'm I'm incredibly impressed with Hannah and I feel like she's gonna take over the world one day in terms of all of this and she's in many ways far better than I. And I feel so lucky as a creator of shows to have Hannah as a producer and a creative force, but also as a mother to get to work with my daughter. I'm so fortunate. From my perspective, it sucks. Our, it's so shitty. <laughs> I hate it. I'm quitting. Good to know. Um, no, I I think our language was always stories. Like, mm -hmm. we always talked about books, and we always talked about movies, and that was just always kind of how we would connect, mm -hmm. is about the stuff, the stories that we were consuming, and the stories that we found interesting or heard, and, and even, you know, in college and, and into, you know, when I was living in Paris after school, you would always send me books and scripts. I was not even really working mm -hmm. 
remotely in TV yet, but you'd always send me stuff and be like, what do you think about this? Or do you feel like there's a show in here? And I loved when you would do that because it was like super fun and I felt like there was some kind of an instinct it was feeding and you were validating that and you and I would then get to have like fun conversations about these great books or great articles or whatever when ultimately I felt, you know, I had built enough experience outside of working for you directly or in TV directly. It was an obvious next step because it was the stuff I would wanted yeah. to be doing all along. I have to say, I remember a moment when I think you were writing your dissertation, your um, thesis. thesis, and I remember saying to you, you were the writer. And I remember... I'm a craftsperson, and you're the writer, because it was... Her prose was so beautiful and so fine and so elegant and filled with such beautiful metaphor and allegory, and I loved to read, and I was super impressed, because I sure as hell couldn't have done it. When you said that to me, I was like, that's absurd. <laughs> Don't joke. Please don't joke. <laughs> I was like, that is... Did you really? Yeah, I was like, are you fucking kidding me? I'm the writer. I'm like 21 and you have, you know, 10 oh years God. of the world's biggest show behind you. And you're like, so no, you're envious. the one. I'm telling you, I still feel that. Well, thanks, Mom. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Before a pitch... I go into the bathroom at the office of whatever network I'm pitching, and I take paper towels and I shove them un into my armpits because I sweat so profusely that I just need that, that extra layer of protection. On a pitch day, I like to drink a lot of water, so I really have to pee, which puts me on the edge of my seat. <laughs> and I have a certain kind of energy. Uh-huh. So a little desperation. A little desperate, just a touch <laughs> of that agita. In terms of, uh, I, I, I like to bring, it's very strange things. I like to have this thing I carry that I only put pitches in. I don't put anything else in this envelope thing except pitches. And I bring that whenever I go to a pitch. And I have nothing but the those pages and a thing of water in front of me. I don't do anything like I have to wear two different colored socks or anything. It's all about... You are a little superstitious, though. But not not for pitches so much as, like, your everyday blue mug. Oh, yeah, I'm totally superstitious. I have to drink out of a blue mug in the morning. Shh. <laughs> Regardless. Regardless. So I don't have any, any real superstitions as much as I have to be incredibly prepared. I've not only written the pitch, I've read it about 172 times. Mm -hmm. So I am very familiar with it. I want Hannah to read it. I want Robbie Tolan to read it. Robbie Tolan is my producing partner at OK Goodnight. She is the third of the triumvirate of uh, Hannah Cantor and me and Robbie. We are OK Goodnight. I love Robbie and Hannah's feedback. So we spend a fair bit of time when we do pitches talking about it, doing drafts, let's discuss it, does, does the structure work? I mean, structure is a big thing when you're doing a pitch that, what do you do first? Do you tell the story of the show or do you tell the character? I mean, you have to, and each show demands its own version mm -hmm. of a pitch. Very much need the feedback from Hannah and Robbie. Yeah, and, and the shows that we pitch that you aren't writing, I will often write the pitch right. with 
the writer that we've. So That's I'm right. like the the Marta ambassador in those in that sort of a yeah. brainstorm, and then I bring it to you and Robbie, and the same, go through the same process. It does end up boiling down to structure a lot of the time because mm-hmm. it's hard when you're so inside of you know the seed of an idea to know the best way at it from the outside and, and the best way to tell the story it. to lead someone through it exactly exactly so, so like you would think you could just launch right in with like here's the premise but that maybe is just dropping too much information too hot and too fast and you know you need someone with a little bit of distance to and there's a lot of backstory that you need to know but not always who you're pitching to mm-hmm that person doesn't always need to know, but we need to know that story. We need to know what they have in their pockets. But you don't always have to tell that to the person you're pitching to. Our mission statement at OK Good Night is we are serious joymakers. And I think that encapsulates how we feel about the content that we create. About both creating and about the audience. Correct. That we, we're serious because we work our asses off and we take our role as storytellers very seriously. It is a big responsibility to have the ear and eye of the public on any level. And so you have to really show up with your best stuff and, and make a positive legacy with whatever you create. But the Joymaker piece, I think, is really at the crux of what we do because a great story sparks joy sad or happy yeah as of emotional the joy of a story well told is something super primal and can have massive ripple effects through cultures through individuals through relationships it's 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 the way that we make sense of our lives our lives are way too short to not be maximizing our joy potentials I have to agree with everything you just said, because you're right. I'm the genius, <laughs> you're the I think, genius. is what we've established. And In terms of the future of television and where that goes, you know, people stay home more. There are many, many options. There is niche TV. There is you, you can find what you want somewhere. And for a creator of content, for creators of content, it's incredibly exciting because the big thing is that there is room for story in many areas. You just have to find the area that you want to delve into, that you want to dive into. You know, I don't know... Ultimately, what's going to happen with TV, but it's being reinvented, and I think that was absolutely crucial. Multi, multi-camera wasn't going to stick the way it was, and it has to be reinvented. Single camera has been, I think, is changing because we have so many options and ways to do it now, and there's something for everybody. There's a place for everybody. I agree with that, I, but I also think, you know, we're... We, we, it feels like we're in the midst of a social and political awakening as a country right now. And I do think that content creators have a responsibility to ask themselves, is this an essential story to be telling right now? Is this, is this contributing positively to, to the world the world and not 
Am I teaching you something? No. Never, never. Never that. Never am I teaching you something. Never am I telling you to be something. It is always, is my story pertinent and enjoyable? Mm-hmm. What's the impact? Worth telling. What's the impact that I'm going to have? You can't, though, when you come up with a show, think about what the impact is going to be. That's that's the lucky result. Right. But the intention. What's the story you want to tell, and what's the story you'd want to watch? I mean, that was always a rule that David and I had. What's the show you want to watch? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do a show that I'd never watch. Yeah. We've, we've actually gone down the road with some development yeah. in the past and thought that there's something interesting there, and this feels juicy, and this feels relevant. And then, you know, a couple months in, be like, yeah. I don't think I want to watch this show. So then it's like, how do you then convince other people to watch it? Yeah, that's back to what's in your heart. Yeah. And if it matters at all, and I know I'm not pitching, I really have to pee. (laughs) (laughs) The TV Campfire was produced by Kristen Myers with music and editing by Five Ohm Productions. This production was made possible by our wonderful partners, Matica Productions and the Forever Dog Podcast Network. Be sure to check out their other great series at foreverdogpodcast.com. Go to atxfestival.com for details on this and our other audio projects. You could also buy badges and join us at the festival June 7th through 10th in Austin. And you can watch the season finale of this podcast live. We hope to see you there.